0: Welcome to emergencymedicinecases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. So we're back with Dr. Jordan Chenkin and Dr. Jamie Blicker on the second part of the procedures episode, Pearls and Pitfalls, Tips and Tricks, and we're going to jump right into another case. This case is that of a 54-year-old otherwise healthy woman who presents to your ED with a two-day history of gradual onset, diffuse headache, and generalized weakness. Her husband reports that she's been unusually confused and has had difficulty ambulating for the past few hours, prompting him to bring her to the ED. Review of systems is otherwise negative. On exam in the ED, her vital signs are normal, except for a heart rate of 105 and a temp of 38.1 degrees. Her GCS is 14, pupils are equal and reactive, fundi are difficult to assess, and her neck is supple. She has a negative Koenig and Brzezinski's, but a positive jolt accentuation of her headache. She's able to ambulate, but with some difficulty due to diffuse weakness. She has no pronator drift. Cerebellar testing is normal. Power is 4 out of 5 throughout. Sensation is intact, and reflexes are normal. So, Dr. Chenkin, you've got this patient with a headache confusion, fever, and jolt accentuation, your working diagnosis is bacterial meningitis and you wonder whether or not she needs a CT of her head before performing an LP. We all know that the sooner that we give antibiotics, the better for these patients. And if it takes a while to get a CT before your LP, then you might need to delay antibiotics. Or if you give the antibiotics and then send them for CT, then your LP might not be accurate. So Dr. Chenkin, in which patients with suspected meningitis is it safe to perform an LP without first doing a CT? In other words, which patients are at risk for brain herniation as a direct result of a lumbar puncture?
1: So this is a really controversial question, and unfortunately, there's a large amount of practice variability when it comes to performing a CT scan prior to a lumbar puncture. And importantly, whether an LP can precipitate cerebral herniation is unknown, and a causal link has not been proven. There are multiple studies looking at the link between LP and herniation, and there's actually some interesting findings from these studies. The first, and really importantly, cerebral herniation after an LP is extremely rare. There are only 22 cases in the entire world's literature reporting this. We know that the, the finding of a mass effect on CT scan does not predict herniation after an LP. So even in patients who are found to have a mass effect on CT, and then went on to undergo an LP, complications were extremely rare for these patients. Probably more importantly, a normal CT scan does not eliminate the risk of herniation after an LP. Herniation is a known complication of bacterial meningitis, and it can occur with or without an LP. Herniation has also occurred in patients that did not undergo an LP due to concerning findings on their CT scan. So the bottom line is that CT findings cannot reliably predict who is at risk for herniation. In addition, uh, we need to consider, as you mentioned, the downside to ordering routine CT scans on everybody before performing LPs. Obtaining a CT scan and having read by a radiologist can sometimes take several hours, and this can cause significant delays in the diagnosis of meningitis. So based on this information, we need to use a selective approach to using CT scans before LP. This selective approach should be based on your clinical examination. The clinical examination has been shown to be more reliable for predicting who will have raised intracranial pressure than what you find on CT scan. In the New England Journal of Medicine in 2001, uh, Hasbin published a paper and identified 13 clinical findings that predicted abnormalities on the CT scan. Um, These findings included an older age over 60, a history of immunocompromised state, a history of CNS disease such as mass or stroke, a seizure within the past week, any neurological findings on examination, and altered mental status. So what does this mean? If you have a patient who is awake and alert, has a normal neurologic exam, including no papilledema, is not elderly or immunocompromised, then the evidence would suggest that you do not need to perform a CT scan first. So that being said, there is still a wide practice variation when it comes to CTs before LPs, and it's a good idea to practice in a similar manner to the, your, the members of your group. And as a general rule, it's not always a good idea to be an outlier in your group. If you do decide that the patient does need a CT scan first and you're concerned about meningitis, remember that it's the safest thing to do is administer antibiotics first so that you don't delay the treatment to the patient and cause a bad outcome.
2: The only thing I would add is you have to consider the resources that are available to you in your centre. And depending on where you work you may have ready access to CT scan. And if you can get a CT scan in five minutes and look at it yourself and interpret it yourself, then you may have a different, different threshold for ordering the scan. And obviously, if you need to ship somebody to another hospital to obtain a CT scan, then that's gonna have an impact on uh, your decision tree.
0: Okay, so the, the bottom line is that you have to take your individual patient where you practice mm. and measure how long it'll take you to get a CT whether you're capable of interpreting the CT accurately and the condition of the patient if they're majorly altered or they have an obvious focal neurologic deficit, then they need a CT first. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, for your young immunocompetent patient with no neurologic deficits, GCS of 15, who comes in, you think it might be a viral meningitis, but you need to do an LP to make sure that it's not bacterial those people you probably don't need a
2: ct on absolutely i agree yeah ct is superfluous one other thing to keep in mind is the use of ultrasound and measurement of uh, optic nerve diameter as a surrogate for elevated icp and if that's something that's in your skill set then that's one more piece of the puzzle that you could use to perhaps reassure yourself that icp is not elevated and ct is not necessary I've often found
1: that seeing papilledema can be quite tricky on fundoscopy, but on ultrasound, papilledema is quite evident and, and quite easy to pick out. So that's okay. um, a, a great suggestion. I, I completely agree. All
0: right. Dr. Cheng, can you just review quickly for us how you check for papilledema with an ultrasound and maybe tell us where you could find it on the web? The basic technique involves applying
1: a high-frequency linear probe to over the patient's closed eyelid, um, having them sort of gazing in the neutral position, gazing straight ahead, and then just adjusting your your machine, your image, so that you can see the optic nerve and the retina at the back of this, uh, the, the back of the eye. The two things that I look for first are the the optic nerve sheath diameter, as Dr. Uh, Blicker mentioned. There there is significant variation and variability in how you measure this and the numbers that are considered normal. The way you measure the optic nerve sheath diameter is to first measure three millimeters posterior to the optic nerve behind the retina, and across at the three millimeter part. Mark, you're going to measure the the diameter of the optic nerve sheath, and above five millimeters is considered abnormal. And size generally plateaus out around seven millimeters, so it's it's still quite a narrow range of when it becomes normal and abnormal. And the other thing you can look for is papilledema on the ultrasound. And normally the retina has a nice smooth contour at the back. With papilledema, you'll actually see a, a convex bulging out right above the optic nerve. Uh, which is actually quite easy to pick out. And I've I've picked it out uh, on a number of occasions. So definitely something worth looking for.
0: So that's whether we should be doing a CT before LP. So let's get on to talking a little bit more about LP itself. Post-LP headache, which has an incidence as high as 25% and sometimes requires an epidural patch, is something that we obviously want to avoid. What tips can you give us to help minimize the chances of the dreaded post-LP headache?
2: Good question. Everybody worries about causing... A post-lumbar puncture or post-epidural puncture headache. One of the things that we used to enforce was strict bed rest and keeping the patient in a supine position for an hour after the procedure and uh, really there's no evidence that bed rest after lumbar puncture decreases the risk of a post-LP headache. What has been shown to really make a difference is using an atraumatic blunt needle and using smaller gauge needles. A standard lumbar puncture needle has a cutting tip or a cutting edge. And if you're using a non-cutting needle, it's got a blunt tip and a uh, side bore hole, and to puncture through the skin actually requires you to make a puncture wound in the skin with a scalpel. The incidence of post-LP headache may be decreased. However, the odds ratio crossed unity crossed 1. So it's um, debatable <laughs> whether it helps. Um, the, the, that study uh, was um, 0.19 to 1.07. So it probably does help, but the fact that, that in that particular study, the odds ratio uh, range, you know, range was across unity calls into question whether it's really of value.
0: Some people do recommend using small gauge needle, like a 26 gauge. Uh, the ones in yeah. the kits are usually 20, 20 gauge. Yeah, and I, you know, it makes sense that a
2: smaller gauge needle will definitely. I mean, intuitively, it makes sense, and that's been borne out in the literature that you know a smaller hole is going to cause less problems with leaks. And we we know that the the reason you get a headache is because of a leak. If it's a difficult LP, uh, the needle tends to bend more easily. And uh, if it's an elderly patient, and sometimes you're trying to puncture through a calcified ligamentum flavum, you may have more difficulty with a very fine needle. And then just practically speaking, obtaining a sample is extremely time consuming using a 26 gauge needle. So more importantly is to, I think regardless of what kind of needle you decide to use, to reinsert the stylet in the needle prior to removing the needle. And the theory behind that is that if you do not insert the stylet and you withdraw the needle you may generate a little bit of suction and pull a strand of tissue or a, and cause a persistent leak. So if you can minimize keeping that hole open by reinserting a stylet, I think it's worthwhile. And then the other thing is just remembering about the orientation of the bevel of the needle and that you want to keep the bevel of the needle parallel to the long axis of the spine so that you're more splitting the fibers, in theory, in the longitudinal axis. And keep in mind also that It'll be different orientation depending on whether the patient is in a lateral decubitus position or sitting. And so if you tend to do most of your LPs in the lateral decubitus position and then the odd time you have somebody sit up to do it, you have to remember that now they're they're in a different plane that you have to reorient your needle to always stay in the parallel to the long axis of the spine.
0: Right. Okay, so the bevel's always going to be pointing towards the side of the patient. Exactly. Right. Dr. Blicker, let's say you're doing an LP to rule out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. The last thing we want is a traumatic tap to mess up our interpretation of the CSF. How can we minimize the chances of a traumatic tap?
2: So a few few things you can do. You can use lidocaine with epinephrine to anesthetize the skin, causing local vasoconstriction. The other thing is to put your needle through a a sterile 2x2 piece of gauze and so that it will wick up any blood that uh, may emanate from the skin or sometimes from the, the needle. And sometimes when you get the lumbar puncture and you get an tra- initially bloody drop, what you can do is just wick that away with a piece of gauze and then you'll see that the remainder of the CSF drainage is actually clear. So that's a tip. The other thing is not to be shy about going up a spot, up, a, up an interspace. If you're you know, having a poke and you're not having any luck, you're actually more likely to cause a traumatic tap by repeated pokes in the same interspace than you are by just getting a new needle and going up an in interspace. Mm-hmm.
1: Cleaning the hub of the needle is probably the most important thing because what I've found is that you can get a blood clot that forms in the, in the hub of the needle and that just contaminates all, all of your tubes. Uh, so if you just, as, as you said, just take a 2x2 two two gauze and just clean out that hub, get rid of that blood clot, uh, often that, that removes any false positives that you're going to get with your tabs.
0: So when it comes to LP, we've talked about how to minimize post-LP headache. What's the best patient position for a lumbar puncture? Some people have the patient sitting up. Some people have the patient lateral decubitus. Some people flex the patient's neck. Some people don't flex the patient's neck. Some people have the hips elevated. Can you tell us what does the literature say and what would you recommend in in terms of patient position for lumbar punctures? Sure. So in in terms of the literature uh, and success rates, there's really no evidence
1: that one position has any advantage over the other position. Uh, So in general, I think you should use the position that you feel most comfortable with, that you have the most experience with, and that gives you the highest success rate. That being said, I have a preference for the lateral decubitus position for a few reasons. Uh, The lateral decubitus position allows for the measurement of your CSF opening pressure, and this is something that's often forgotten, but occasionally can provide some very important information. I picked up a a couple of cases of unsuspected idiopathic intracranial hypertension by just getting in the habit of routinely checking the opening pressures.
0: So just a refresher on idiopathic intracranial hypertension, that's what used to be called pseudotumor cerebri. This usually presents with headache and visual disturbance, usually in women of childbearing age. They will have papilledema on fundoscopy. There's usually no localizing signs except maybe a cranial nerve 6 palsy, and it is associated with cerebral venous thrombosis. So the key to diagnosis here, as Dr. Chenkin was saying, was getting an elevated opening pressure. The only position you can do that reliably in is the lateral decubitus as opposed to the sitting position.
1: The lateral decubitus position also helps to avoid your patient who may become presynchopal or sinkable, and avoids a fall onto the floor. And it also, I find, that helps patients hold more still during the procedure um, so they don't move around as much. If you are using the lateral decubitus position, make sure that you take the time to fully align the spine with the hips perpendicular to the table and a pillow supporting the head. If there's any rotation of the spine, it will make your LP much more difficult. I do occasionally use the sitting position, and mainly on patients that are obese or have very difficult landmarks. I find that the spinal alignment can be maintained more easily in the upright position for these patients. There is some evidence that the sitting position can help increase the interspinous distance, but we don't really know what the clinical significance of that is. The sitting position also theoretically increases your CSF pressure, which can uh, assist with a difficult LP. If you do use the sitting position, Make sure there's a stool supporting the patient's feet so that the hips remain in the flexed position, which increases the interspinous width. In either position, uh, just make sure that you're not over-flexing the neck as it's really uncomfortable for the patient and it doesn't at all help increase your interspinous distance. In pediatric patients, over-flexion of the neck can actually lead to respiratory compromise.
2: The so- one thing I might add is that sometimes if you're doing one position and you're having a difficult difficulty, then you try the alternative position and you're pleasantly surprised that mm. it's easy. And then so along those lines, sometimes it just takes a fresh set of hands. Some, you, can have, you can be terrific at doing lumbar punctures and still fail to get a lumbar puncture. And then one of your equally experienced colleagues or even less experienced colleagues can, can try 10 minutes later with a fresh set of eyes and hands and uh, get it on the first, uh, the first shot. And that's not a reflection on your uh, procedural competence at all that's just a reality that sometimes a fresh set of hands is worthwhile.
0: So let's talk a little bit about landmarking for LP. Dr. Chenkin, can you review for us how to landmark for LP and how we can use the ED ultrasound to help us find the best spot to go in with the needle? Sure. So it's important to remember that in adults, the spinal cord ends
1: around the L1 vertebrae. So you can really use any interspace between L2-3 down to L5-S1. In infants, however, remember that the spinal cord ends around L3, so you, you can only really use the L4-5 or L5-S1 or L5, interspace. If you palpate the patient's iliac crests and con- connect a line between them, um, this will end up over the L4 spinous process. So that's your starting point, and then you can either move up or down from there. Then you want to basically feel the spinous processes and find an interspace that is large and easily palpable, and that's usually where I'll go for my LP. It's important to mark your spot using either a cap of a needle or using suction on a syringe. Avoid trying to use a, a pen because it'll often wash off when you when you prep the skin and then you have to start all over again. And then always just make sure to repalpate your landmarks before you, you put your needle in as sometimes the patients have shifted somewhat and you may find that your landmarks have changed uh, once the patient's in position ready to go. If you're having any trouble palpating the landmarks, um, I do use ultrasound for patients that um, I cannot reliably palpate their interspaces. I do find that it can be quite helpful. That being said, ultrasound really does not add any value if you have a nice thin patient who you can easily feel their landmarks. And in fact, ultrasound can be quite difficult in those patients because of the bony protuberances of their spinous processes, Make performing the ultrasound and centering it over the spinous process is actually very challenging. Uh, so this is a, a technique that it's actually hard to practice on a young fit person but can be quite helpful in patients that are obese or have very difficult landmarks to palpate. The way we use ultrasound is is a static technique. So basically what we're doing is we're locating the interspace, we're marking it, we're determining the depth that the needle needs to transverse to get to the ligamentum flavum. And you can also get an idea of what angle you need to insert your needle at to properly hit the ligamentum flavum. There is really no advantage to trying to do this in a dynamic manner which basically means watching the needle go in under ultrasound guidance. It's really tricky to do that. It really doesn't add anything. So this is really just a static technique. The evidence for this, was a study published by Nomura in the Journal of Ultrasound and Medicine in 2007. And they actually did a randomized control trial, uh, which was double-blinded using invisible ink. It's kind of a neat methodology where they, they landmarked once using palpation and they use they landmarked again using ultrasound. And they were randomized to which of the two marks was revealed to the person performing the LP. And they found that the success rate was 96% in the ultrasound group compared with 72% in the landmark group. And most importantly for obese patients, they had 100% success rate in the ultrasound group compared to 43% in the landmark group. They found no difference in the patient's comfort, uh, the time to perform the procedure, or the number of attempts. So um, this is something, as I said, I use in my patients where I really have no idea where I'm going to put my needle. But in my young, thin patients, I I don't find that it really adds much. Uh, I just go with my landmark technique. In terms of actually doing a ultrasound-guided LP, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, First, you want to position your patient in the actual position that you're going to perform your LP. If they move at all after you've done your landmarking, you're going to have to start all over. So you want to get everything ready and position them appropriately. In terms of equipment, you you need um, some sort of Sharpie marker or some sort of indelible ink marker. And then you're going to need to use your curved array probe, as these are generally going to be larger patients, so you're going to be looking deeper into the body. Um, I start by looking transverse, so uh, place the probe on the patient in the transverse position, and sliding it left to right on the patient to try and find where the midline is. And sometimes that, that's probably the, the, the most useful information you can get, is just where's the midline on this patient, where's the spine's process. Once you've located the midline, you can mark on either side of the probe so that you know where the midline is. You can also then measure the distance to the ligamentum flavum and you can angle your probe to get a sense of what angle the needle needs to go at to get right into that space. If you like, then you can rotate the probe into the longitudinal and slide up and down cephalad caudad, to try and find the interspace. And then again, mark on either side of the probe, you'll end up with four dots on the back of the patient. You connect them to make an X and that's where you're going to insert your needle. Just remember, though, when you're measuring the distance to the ligamentum flavum, um, have a look at the size of your needle. I find that often one of the biggest challenges in these patients is that you just don't have a long enough needle to get to the interspace. So no matter how good your landmarking is, you're just not going to be able to get CSF back. So have a look at the depth, and if you need to try and find a larger needle, make sure you start with that before you perform your procedure.
0: Okay, we already talked about uh, some ways of minimizing a traumatic tap by using lidocaine with epinephrine and by using a two-by-two two gauze to make sure that it wicks up any any blood on the tip of your needle. Any other tips and tricks you can tell us about how to get that champagne tap? Sure. So I, I always uh, warn my patients ahead of time while I'm performing
1: the procedure that they need to provide me some input. They might feel some pressure in their back. They might actually feel electric shocks going down their leg if we're off to the side. And it's important that they know to provide that feedback to you as you're performing the procedure. So if they say I'm getting electric shocks going down my right leg, then you know that you're too far off to the patient's right. You can come back out and reangle your needle. So that feedback can be, can be quite helpful if you're having uh, trouble finding the space.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I also find that um, being generous with the local anesthetic uh, really helps the patient to lie still. I like to do a big field block with my local, and I find that almost always I can make this a painless procedure for the patient. And if they're lying still, I think it really helps you to maximize your chance of getting it done right on the first time. And the one other tip I would say is uh, I've seen people try to re-angle their spinal needle while it's deep inside the patient. And remember, these, these are cutting needles. So if you try to move the needle around when it's already through the skin, um, you can lacerate things, you can cause bleeding. And again, um, that can cause a false positive tap. So just remember, if you need to reangle your needle, if you're hitting bone, to come all the way back out to the skin, almost out of the skin before reangling your needle and then reinserting it.
2: Great exactly. tips. One other thing is uh, if you're anticipating a difficult lumbar puncture and the patient's anxious is I increasingly have a lower threshold for offering procedural sedation.
0: And uh, Dr. Chen, can we talk a little bit about how to deal with the patient who's obese that you have to do a lumbar puncture on? Uh, You might need a longer needle, you might use ultrasound. There is something that's been described out there using a lateral approach to the LP. Can you tell us a little bit about this lateral approach when you might want to try and use it and how it's done? Sure. So a lateral approach um, has been described in the literature
1: for patients who have difficulty flexing their back. So you can't get them in that good arched position to spread their intraspinous space. So patients, for example, who have ankylosing spondylitis or severe osteoarthritis or previous spinal surgery, also patients who are obese and you can't palpate their spinous processes or... Demented
2: patients. Demented
1: patients, absolutely. Or even in old patients who have very calcified ligaments that are deflecting the needle and you're having trouble because your needle is sort of bouncing off those calcified ligaments. Um, The way you do this is you introduce the needle intentionally one centimeter lateral to the midline. It's generally described to be done in the L4-5 interspace. And then you're going to direct your needle slightly cephalad to miss the lamina and slightly medially to compensate for the fact that you're going uh, lateral to the midline. And the idea is that the needle, the needle will penetrate the ligamentum flavum, bypassing all the supraspinal and interspinal ligaments. One thing to remember when you're using this technique is that the needle has to pass through a lot more territory. So the needle hub is going to end up being closer to the skin when you enter the dura.
0: Dr. Blicker, sometimes we're faced with a patient who has a coagulopathy who needs an LP. For example, someone might have an elevated INR because they're on Coumadin. Or they've got liver disease, they have an elevated INR, or sometimes we're we're faced with patients with leukemia or some other cancer where their platelets are low. When is it safe to do an LP with a patient who has an elevated INR or has low platelets?
2: Well, that's a good question. I always like to let somebody else sign up for those patients. (laughs) uh... No, just kidding. Um, So we always worry about causing uh, iatrogenic complications, And that just stems from our credo, do no harm. So who can safely get a lumbar puncture who's coagulopathic? So clearly there's high-risk groups that should not be getting lumbar punctures without, for example, hemophiliacs need very extensive factor replacement prior to invasive procedures like that. And then there's just people who are coagulopathic from thrombocytopenia with normal INRs who, when do they need platelets? And then there's people who are coagulopathic with high INR because of liver disease. And so how do we, who, who are really the high risk patients and what do we do with them? Well, even the ones who are on Coumadin, that's easy. If they need an LP, they get prothrombin concentrate, octoplex or Berryplex in Canada. And some people say you should do another INR a few minutes after infusion of the product. That being said, if you know what their INR was beforehand and you know the appropriate amount of PCC to give, you could make a pretty good argument that it's going to be pretty predictably completely reversed. So that's, you know, that's one easy group to deal with. Okay. What, what um, INR are
0: you shooting for? Is there a specific cutoff of INR above that's, which? That's
2: right. So nobody really knows the answer to that. You could talk to a dozen people and you'll get a dozen answers. Clearly, over 1.5 is a no-no. And then there's that gray area between, clearly less than 1.3 is probably okay. And then what do you do with the ones between 1.3 and 1.5? Some people say an INR of 1.3 is fine. Some people say 1.4 is okay. Some people say 1.5, no. Other people say 1.4 is probably not okay. So I think that if the INR is over 1.4, you need to correct the INR. And similarly, if the platelets are less than 50,000, that should be corrected. I think there's support for that. Some people feel uncomfortable doing lumbar puncture with the platelets of less than 80,000. There's some literature that looked at 60,000. So, I mean, nobody really knows for certain. These are exceedingly rare events, complications from, from these procedures. So to study them adequately is probably not trivial. That being said, I think that My practice is I want the platelets over 50,000. I personally like the INR below 1.3.
0: Okay, and I guess it also depends on the reason why the patient's INR is high. Exactly. If they're on Coumadin for AFib and they're 55 years old, then the risk of stroke isn't that high if you reverse their INR. That's right. If someone's got a, a valve replacement and they're 87 years old... yes. Then the other thing they're is they're you know, very high risk when you reverse them. So you, for I guess right. for each individual patient, you have to yeah. weigh the. The, the ones r- that the worry
2: me benefits. are the alcoholics with the with chronic liver disease who are coagulopathic and thrombocytopenic, and even when you correct them, still bleed more than regular people. So those are the ones that I really worry about mm-hmm. you know, for, in terms of any kind of invasive right. procedure.
0: So you don't do any LPS at St. Mike's ever.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> So that being said, I, although our guidelines of platelets less than 50,000 should be replaced and uh, ideally an INR should be less than 1.4, keep in mind patients can have bleeding, uh, increased bleeding risk even with completely normal parameters. For example, patients uh, on hemodialysis with uh, dysfunctional platelets and what can be done in those patients to decrease bleeding risks. Or if you have a, a dialysis patient who happens to have low platelets, is there anything in addition to platelet transfusion that can be done to improve coagulation parameters? And there is some evidence that, yes, you can do some things to decrease bleeding complications in those patients. And although I don't see it being done too often, you could consider using DDAVP for uh, improved platelet aggregation. You could consider the administration of intravenous premarin. Keep in mind you know that there subsets of patients where uh, none of this applies, and a good example would be the ITP patient who absolutely should not be getting platelets. It's just going to cause uh, you know, platelet consumption. And then will, um, and when they actually need platelets for a life-threatening problem, they uh, won't have any benefit from platelet transfusion. So patients like that, I think, really benefit from a hematology consult.
0: What the hematologist might suggest in that situation is IV steroids and IVIG.
2: Need help! Can do it alone. Hey! I need can do it alone. Good God.
0: So here I'd like to do a review on everything we've talked about so far when it comes to LP. First, when is it safe to do an LP without first doing a CT? Well, there's a practice guidelines for management of bacterial meningitis from the Infectious Diseases Society of America back in 2004, which say that you need to do a CT before LP if the patient's immunocompromised, for example, HIV or AIDS, or they have immunosuppressive therapy or they're post-transplant. Number two, if they have a history of CNS disease, like a mass lesion, stroke, or a focal infection. Three, a new onset of seizure within one week. Four, Papilledema, and if you're handy at ED ultrasound, you can determine this quite easily compared to fundoscopy. Five, an abnormal level of consciousness, and six, a focal neurologic deficit. So, in the young patient who's a GCS of 15 and doesn't have any of these other risk factors, then you can skip the CT and go straight to LP for those patients who you need to get it quickly on. How do we minimize the chances of post LP headache? There's no evidence that bed rest after LP decreases the risk of post-LP headache, but there are a few things we can do to prevent this complication. One is to use a smaller gauge needle, such as a 26 or a 24 gauge, rather than the usual 20 gauge needle that comes with the kit. Two, you can use an atraumatic blunt needle if you have them in your department, remembering that you need to make an incision with a scalpel first. Thirdly, don't forget to reinsert the stylet in the needle before you remove the needle from the patient. And lastly, orient the bevel of the needle so that it's facing the patient's side. That way you're cutting along the axis of the fibers instead of across the fibers. To help reduce the chance of a traumatic tap, you can use lidocaine and epinephrine to anesthetize the skin widely, and you can go in with your needle through a 2x2 piece of sterile gauze. In terms of patient position for an LP, there's no evidence that sitting versus lateral decubitus are any different when it comes to success and complications. Some of the advantages of lateral decubitus are that it allows you to measure opening pressure accurately so you can pick up things like intracranial hypertension and you don't have to worry about the patient going vagal on you. The main advantage of the sitting position is that it optimizes the space between the spinous processes and makes it easier to keep the patient's back straight. And if you like to do your LPs with the patient sitting, don't forget to get their hips into a flex position on a stool so as to increase the intervertebral spaces. Remember to avoid flexion of the neck as it's very uncomfortable for the patient and in kids can cause respiratory compromise. As far as landmarking goes, the spinal cord ends around L1, L2 in most adults. And so joining a line from the posterior iliac crest is about at L4, and so you want to go around there. For patients who are obese, ED ultrasound has been shown to significantly increase your success rate with an LP. And if the patient's unable to curve their spine for the LP, for example, if they have ankylosing spondylitis or severe osteoarthritis, then you may want to consider the lateral approach that Dr. Chenkin described. What about patients with coagulopathy that we need to do an LP on? The interventional radiology guidelines say that we should correct an INR of 1.5 or more and a platelet count of less than 50,000 prior to doing the LP, although you need to take into account the reason for your patient being coagulopathic as well as the urgency for the LP. And if the patient has ITP or is on dialysis or suffers from hemophilia, get your hematologist involved as these patients require very individualized management. Next, we're going to go on to case two. Case number two is a 24-year-old tall lanky man who presents to your ED with a 24-hour history of increasing pleuritic chest pain and shortness of breath. He's otherwise healthy except for a five pack year history of smoking. There was no trauma. His vital signs are normal except for a respiratory rate of 28 and on auscultation of his chest he has decreased air entry to the left apex. A chest x-ray shows a large left-sided pneumothorax. While you start to set up for insertion of a pigtail catheter with a Heimlich valve, you recall reading about a simple needle aspiration as an alternative for non-traumatic pneumothoraces. Let's start with the question that seems like a simple question but actually has a complicated answer of which patients with spontaneous pneumothoraces require drainage.
1: So um, I think it's a good question. It's important to remember that not all spontaneous pneumothoraces need any treatment at all and if you have a patient who has a primary spontaneous pneumothorax so what this means is they have no underlying lung pathology they're otherwise healthy patient and they have a small pneumothorax and they really are not all that symptomatic uh, observation is uh, is a completely valid option for these patients so the question is then what is a small pneumothorax Um, there's different guidelines have different numbers that are thrown around A couple of numbers that you can remember are if you measure the pneumothorax from the apex of the lung to the top of the chest, and it's less than 3 centimeters, that would be considered a small pneumothorax. Another method involves averaging the size of the pneumothorax at three locations, at the apex, the midpoint, and the base of the lung, and averaging out the number of centimeters. And each centimeter corresponds to about 10% of a pneumothorax. So uh, if you get a number of less than 20%, that's also considered a small pneumothorax. So again, patients who are, have primary spontaneous pneumothoraces that are small, um, that are relatively asymptomatic, you can consider just observation for those patients, bring them back the next day for a repeat x-ray. And as long as it's resolving and they, they remain asymptomatic, then you can just follow them up. They don't really need any treatment at all. Any patients who have a primary spontaneous pneumothorax that's large, so more than the three centimeters of the apex or larger than 20% or they're very symptomatic, generally these patients would qualify for a drainage procedure. And it's also important to remember that any patients with uh, secondary spontaneous pneumothoraces, so for example patients who have a COPD or any other underlying lung pathology, the recommendations are that these patients should have a drainage procedure as well, even if it's a small pneumothorax.
0: So when it comes to spontaneous pneumothoraces, you have three choices of how to drain them. You can do a simple needle aspiration, which in the British guidelines are what's recommended as the initial procedure of choice to drain your pneumothorax. You can use a pigtail catheter with a Heimlich valve, which is the most popular option in Canada presently, or you can use a large bore chest tube like you would in a trauma patient. Could you just go over for us what the literature says about needle aspiration and whether it's something that you would recommend doing?
2: Sure. So needle aspiration seems to work. There was a review of three trials in uh, 2008, March edition of uh, Annals of Emergency Medicine. It was called Management of Emergency Department Patients with Primary Spontaneous Pneumothorax, Needle Aspiration, or Tube Thoracostomy. And what they found was that patients randomized to needle aspiration or tube thoracostomy had no significant difference in immediate failure rates, one-week failure, risk of complication, and one-year recurrent rates. And thus they found that needle aspiration was as successful and also associated with lower rates of hospitalization. So it seems to work. I think one of the potential disadvantages is that if you do have a recurrence, then you're looking at a second procedure. But as long as you recognize that, it's a viable option. Certainly, I think it would be vastly preferable to a large-bore chest tube.
0: My understanding is that there's good evidence that needle aspiration is as good as large-bore chest tube, but that there's no real randomized trials comparing small-bore chest tubes to needle aspirations, you know, the the pigtail. Can you just describe for us how you would do a needle aspiration? How is the technique done?
2: Sure. So you could use a 14-gauge or 16-gauge angiocath now, keep in mind that you really should use the angiocath as the drainage tube rather than just using the needle because as you decrease the size of the pneumothorax and the lung expands into the needle, if you leave the needle in the chest, you're going to just cause an iatrogenic pneumothorax. So you would put it in the usual location, which, depending on your practice, will be either a you know, fourth or fifth intercostal space between the mid-axillary line to the anterior axillary line. So you can use a saline filled syringe attached to your angiocath needle and obviously prepare the skin in the usual fashion always taking care to avoid the neurovascular bundle. Uh, you can use your local anesthetic and then when you insert your needle as you're, you're aspirating you'll see bubbles in your fluid and then you'll know that you're in the pneumothorax and you could advance your catheter over the needle and then connect your uh, three-way stopcock to a 60cc syringe, and then you could aspirate repetitively, turning off the stopcock in between uh, each withdrawal, so that until you completely drain the pneumothorax, they talk about draining two and a half liters this way.
0: How about the pigtail catheter with the Heimlich valve, the small-bore chest tube technique for spontaneous pneumothoraces what does the literature say about their effectiveness, and what tips can you give us about putting in these pigtail catheters?
1: So I really like the, uh, the small-bore pleural catheters for spontaneous pneumothoraces. This is uh, my go-to device for these patients. These small-bore pleural catheters are really effective for patients with primary spontaneous pneumothoraces. Um, they have a lot of advantages over putting in a chest tube in that they're really easy to insert. Um, there's much less pain involved. It allows the patient to be up and ambulatory and in fact allows for outpatient management, which is really important. Um, There are some disadvantages you need to be aware of with these catheters. They do tend to kink if they are not inserted properly, so that that can obstruct the outflow of air. They also tend to clog quite easily if there's any fluid or debris in the pleural cavity, um, and this can uh, prevent any further air coming out. Um, They also tend to displace more easily because they're harder to secure to the patient. And they're not as good for patients with large or persistent air leaks. Um, In terms of the evidence, there are two retrospective studies looking at the use of these catheters. And they found that compared with large-bore chest tubes, they had the same success rate. Um, There was less infection. um, There was less subcutaneous emphysema. However, there was a slightly increased rate of displacement of the tubes compared to a large-bore chest tube. In terms of a protocol for using these chest tubes, there was a study uh, by Hassani in uh, academic emergency medicine in 2009 that was a retrospective case series of uh, over five years of the use of an outpatient protocol using small bore pleural catheters. And what they did for, um, for any patients with asymptomatic small pneumothoraces, they didn't actually do any drainage procedures, they just did observation. If the patients had large or symptomatic pneumothoraces, they inserted the Plural catheter for one hour they left it in for one hour repeated the chest x-ray and if the x-ray showed that the lung had re-expanded they would actually clamp the tube at that point point. and what they would do would be to send them off for coffee go up to the cafeteria for four to six hours to, to go and wander around obviously with instructions on how to release the valve if uh, they started getting shorter breath when they returned to the emergency department they would get another x-ray if the lung remained re-expanded, they would actually discharge the patient home with 24-hour follow-up.
2: They it's, would remove the chest tube, meaning mean? They send would. Them home. Yeah. Yep. yeah yes.
1: The results of this study actually, they found that 81% of their patients could be discharged home the same day. So it really prevented a lot of admissions to the hospital. Uh, there were no major complications, and they found that this protocol was effective for even 100% complete collapse of the lung. Mm. So even uh, patients with very scary-looking chest X-rays could be managed as an outpatient with this protocol in terms of tips and tricks for inserting small bore pleural catheters remember there are different kits available so some use an over the needle technique some use a seldinger technique Um, so you just have to try different kits out and see which ones work best for you as uh, dr blicker mentioned you can insert these either at the fifth intercostal space where you'd normally put a chest tube or you can um, actually put these in in the second intercostal space in the midclavicular line very important to select your patients carefully. So these work best, as I said earlier, for primary spontaneous pneumothoraces. You wanna be use caution in any patients who have any pleural effusions or hemothoraces as, uh, as the catheter does get clogged and the Heimlich valve also can get clogged with fluid. And uh, these are not generally recommended for secondary spontaneous pneumothoraces as these patients generally have a larger air leak and have a higher complication rate. Generally, they should be admitted to the hospital. Uh, When you're inserting the catheter itself, unlike a chest tube, you want to avoid tunneling the catheter. So when we're putting in a large bore chest tube, we usually uh, recommend starting an interspace below and tunneling it through. Um, If you do this with these tubes, they will generally get kinked over the rib. So the technique you want to use is basically a straight in technique, just going right over top of the rib to avoid the neurovascular bundle, and then aim towards the apex of the the chest. And you want to insert the catheter all the way down to the hub. So you're not, uh, unlike a chest tube, you're not measuring out the, the distance. These are designed to generally go all the way in. And then finally, uh, make sure you put the Heimlich valve the right way around. There's an interesting case report in the literature of the Heimlich valve being attached the wrong way around, uh, resulting in attention tension pneumothorax in the patient. So just make sure you, you take a chance to look at it first. Watch for fluttering of the leaflets of the valve to make sure that air is escaping. And usually there'll be a blue end, which uh, tells you which end to attach to the tube, Uh, so you don't make the patient worse.
0: You had mentioned the option of using the midclavicular line second intercostal space to release the uh, pneumothorax. Uh, We talked in a previous episode about the option and maybe even a better option of rather than using the second intercostal space for a tension pneumothorax, the way we've traditionally done, that maybe using the anterior axillary line in the fifth intercostal space is a better option. And there's a lot of physicians who are doing that for tension pneumothorax now. In what situation would you consider using the second intercostal space for a spontaneous pneumothorax?
1: If you have a patient who can't lie flat, you'd have to be careful that if you insert the tube at the fifth intercostal space, you may have more lung in the way. In in that situation, using the apical area, the second intercostal space, is likely the best spot to, to make sure that you don't Cause an iatrogenic pneumothorax, so that would be one situation where I'd, I'd go with a second intercostal space.
2: One other situation that you might encounter is in somebody with a severe kyphosis; they may have the ribs very closely opposed to one another, and you may actually you may actually find it easier to insert a small bore tube anteriorly than laterally. And certainly, one thing I would urge you to shy away from is uh, any trocar devices. I still see people using a chest tube insertion with a trocar, even for the small bore catheters. And I think it's just a bad idea. We're all so familiar with the Seldinger technique. The kits are out. It's, it's safe. W- why would you want to be jamming a 15 centimeter long needle into a patient's chest with a, with a chest tube over it? I, I don't know. I can't think of a compelling reason that anybody should do that.
0: So generally speaking, for primary spontaneous pneumothoraces and otherwise healthy people, we either want to do a needle aspiration or a pigtail catheter with Heimlich valve to release the pneumothorax. What situation would you consider using a large-bore chest tube in a patient with a spontaneous pneumothorax?
1: So I I completely agree. And I think it's, it's important to remember that if you consult general surgery to manage these patients, what they often will do is put a large bore chest tube in all their patients. So this is one situation where we can really advocate for our patients. And this is a procedure that should be known to all emergency physicians. Just be aware that when you consult the the surgical team, they're, they're used to putting in large bore chest tubes and that's what they do. Uh, So just be aware of that, um, that it may not be the best thing for your patients. There are some situations, however, where uh, a large-bore chest tube may be indicated. The small-bore tubes have a a bit of a higher failure rate in secondary spontaneous pneumothoraces. So as I I mentioned earlier, patients who have underlying lung pathology, they have a somewhat higher rate of failure, and some of them will go on to require a large-bore chest tube if their pneumothorax isn't resolving with the small tube. That being said, the guidelines would suggest it is a treatment option. You can still consider using a, a small tube for a secondary pneumothorax, but just keep in mind that these patients should generally be admitted to the hospital for observation as they can develop attention tension pneumothorax fairly rapidly, even with one of these tubes in place. So they generally need to be in a monitored setting. However, if you want to play it safe, a, a large bore chest tube for those patients is an option as well. Similarly, any uh, pneumothorax that is associated with any significant amount of pleural fluid, again, these small-bore ch- uh, small chest tubes or needle aspiration tend not to work so well for those patients. So you could consider a, a large-bore chest tube for those patients. That being said, a large, there are variations in large-bore chest tubes as well. These patients don't generally need the, the ones we would insert for a massive hemothorax. Um, you could use sort of a medium-sized chest tube, and that would be reasonable as well.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I think in, in uh, you know a complicated secondary pneumothorax, I'll quite often do a trial of a small-bore pleural catheter, and uh, if there's a persistent air leak and the lung's not coming up, then I'll just change them over to maybe a 20 or 24 French chest tube. And One other thing that I've seen people run into trouble with is they think that there's been a failure of the small-bore pleural catheter because they haven't been maximizing its output. And so I'll sometimes see a patient with a pneumothorax that has a small-bore catheter on a Heimlich valve, and the lungs are not coming up, and I've, I'll be asked to you know, troubleshoot the chest tube. Is the chest tube working? wise? And it? It's like you can see the chest tube is working, the butterfly valve is functioning, and there's just not adequate drainage. So then you connect them to an underwater seal, 20 centimeters of water, and lo and behold, the lung comes up. And the chest tube size was actually perfectly adequate. They just needed a larger volume drainage that can be provided by a Heimlich valve. So that's the other thing to keep in mind is that there can be a sequence of steps or trials before you decide you need a large bore thoracostomy tube. So you could do, you know, number one, simple aspiration, number two, small bore pleural catheter to a Heimlich valve. If that's not adequate to underwater seal. If that's not adequate, maybe to a little more pressure underwater seal, so minus 30 instead of minus 20. And if that's still not adequate, then yes, maybe you do need a large-bore thoracostomy tube. And it doesn't need to be a 36 French tube like we do for trauma. But, you know, a 20 is probably adequate. One other thing that when I send people home with a small-bore pleural catheter... Often, even when there's no pleural effusion, they'll still have some serious drainage. Just the pleural, you know, there's a little pleural reaction, they're making a little bit of fluid, and they'll be draining all over the place, and they'll be very uh, upset about it. So, I sometimes will tell them what to expect and say, if you have that happening, you can actually loosely attach a baggie with tape. It shouldn't be an occlusive, and you have to make this clear to the patient, it shouldn't be an occlusive baggie with an elastic around your. Your Heimlich valve, because that defeats the whole purpose of the Heimlich valve. But a loosely taped baggie that will still allow ingress and egress of air, but will capture uh, any serious drainage that might happen, and that way they don't make a mess on their bed sheets and stuff, and get all upset about it.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about troubleshooting and how to follow these patients up. So, let's say you put in a pigtail catheter. Can you just go through for us the steps of when you discharge the patient, what kind of follow up they need? and then when they come back, how to make sure that it's working properly, when the tube needs to come out, et cetera.
1: Sure, so I I think it's important if you're gonna use this strategy in your department to implement a a standard protocol for your department. And the best way to do this is actually to have a a flow sheet, an algorithm that everybody has a copy of, is put on the walls, um, so that when the patient comes back the next day, you can look on the algorithm and see what step you're in so that everybody's using the same treatment pathways. If you don't have this, you may run into problems with, with some of your colleagues not using, being familiar with this strategy and really not knowing what to do with the patient at that point. So I think as a department, everybody should get together and sort of come to an agreement as to how we're going to manage these patients in, in our department. It's not uncommon for after your period of observation while the patient's in the department for the lung not to have fully re expanded, and that's not a problem. As long as the patient is well, there's no signs of tension, they're not short of breath, you can send them home ambulatory with the pleural catheter in place with obvious discharge instructions as to what to come back for. You can show them how to troubleshoot the catheters as well. And what we'll generally do uh, at our center is to bring them back every 24 hours for reassessment. And what this involves is, um, in addition to your examination, is to repeat a chest x-ray to see that the lung is continuing to re-expand. And once it's reasonably well re-expanded, then you can do a trial of clamping, as I described earlier, by basically turning off the stopcock and, and um, sending the patient away for a few hours and re-X-raying them. If the lung continues not to re-expand, then as, as Dr. Blicker mentioned, he's got, there are some things you can use to, to troubleshoot this. The one that we find the most helpful is applying some suction and to an underwater seal. You don't want to ever apply suction directly to the, to the Heimlich valve or the catheter, um, you can attach it to one of your re- uh, standard pleurovac uh, devices and apply about 20 centimeters of water suction to it for a few hours and just reassess. And, and often that's enough to get the visceral and parietal pleura to touch each other enough for long enough to seal the hole and stop the ongoing air leak. So that's that's usually enough to, to solve the problem. If that's still not working and a few days have gone by, the lung is still not re-expanding. I think at that point, most people would consider consulting the surgical team and having a formal chest tube placed and having the patient admitted to the hospital.
2: And also remember to explain to patients about prohibitions for barotrauma, so flying, scuba diving, etc. And then the question is who needs to be referred electively to thoracic surgery and who doesn't. I do not refer all primary spontaneous pneumothoraces to thoracic surgery usually we reserve a referral for a second pneumothorax, spontaneous.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think right. I give them the one free pass, but after their yeah. second one, they're extremely high risk for recurrence. So yeah. they might be a candidate for pleurodesis yeah. at that point. So so I agree. I, I give them one free pass, but the second presentation, they, they should have thoracic follow-up.
0: Right, let's move on to talking about ultrasound-guided fracture reduction. Dr. Chenkin. let's say you've got a patient who's just had a foosh, fallen outstretched hand, and comes in with a classic Coley's fracture. Most of us are pretty good at getting a good reduction in the vast majority of cases, and ultrasound-guided fraction reduction has been touted by some as a way to help us with our reductions. Can you tell us about what the utility of ultrasound-guided fracture reduction is, and if there's any evidence that it helps us and makes a difference? Sure, so it's absolutely true that in the majority of cases, we're able to
1: obtain a satisfactory close reduction. Uh, but occasionally, it does happen that you send your patient for a post-reduction x-ray only to find that the position is still unsatisfactory. And this can happen if there's significant swelling or adipose tissue preventing identification of bony structures, or if the fracture is impacted or under some tension. So at that point, your options are you can resedate the patient, exposing them to the risks of another sedation and delays in discharge. You could leave the fracture in a suboptimal position and have them follow up. Or you can have an orthopedics uh, team come and see the patient and consider re reducing the fracture or taking them for open reduction internal fixation. None of these options are really ideal for the patient. Ultrasound really helps you to avoid this situation in the first place, and it's something that I routinely use for all my fracture reductions. Bony cortex and cortical disruption show up really well with ultrasound, and it's a skill that's easy to learn, and once you've learned it, it really adds only about 10 to 15 seconds to your procedure. There's a few ways that ultrasound helps, not only just with reduction, but in other aspects as well. First of all, I use it to help me diagnose occult fractures. Um, I've picked up multiple sternal fractures, rib fractures, and even scaphoid fractures that were invisible on x-ray. Next, you can actually use it as a guide for your hematoma blocks, especially when there's swelling around the wrist that you just can't palpate the fracture line. You can see it really easily on ultrasound, and under real-time guidance, watch the needle go into the fracture fragment and inject your local anesthetic and getting it done right the first time. Finally, you can use it as a poor man's fluoroscopy. So what I do is uh, take a look at the fracture prior to the reduction, and I just save it on the screen and have it in the background. I do my reduction as I usually would, and then just prior to splinting, I just take another quick look just to make sure everything's lined up properly. In a teaching center, this is especially helpful for me when a junior trainee performs the procedure. I can check whether it's satisfactory or whether I need to give it an extra pull before they wake up and go off for their x-ray. In terms of evidence, there's uh, several studies looking at the effectiveness of ultrasound guided reductions. Eng et al. in in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2010 conducted a before and after study where they looked at cases before using ultrasound and after the implementation of ultrasound. They found that there was a decreased rate of repeat reductions, an improved volar tilt, and they actually found an incidental finding of a decreased operative rate when they used ultrasound. Of course, these are all non-randomized studies, so definitely future randomized control studies are needed. However, this is a technique that I find is, is really fast, really easy, is a great teaching tool, and ends up occasionally saving me time on, on difficult patients. And so it's something I, I do routinely use. I do, I do acknowledge that in most patients, you can get an adequate reduction without ultrasound, but there are the rare un, unexpected cases where the x-ray just does not look adequate. And this, these are the cases where ultrasound can help you. And if you use it for all your cases, you're really not adding a lot of time to your procedure. And it may prevent that one or two cases a year where you might have had to resedate your patient.
0: Well, Dr. Chenkin, that was a pretty convincing argument of why to use ultrasound uh, for fractures and fracture reductions. Could you just go through for us the procedure step by step, how you would use ultrasound to reduce a colles fracture, for example?
1: Sure. So first you want to position the limb. And usually if it's a colles fracture, you're going to have their limb on the stretcher next to their body with the palm down. And you want to use a fairly generous amount of gel on the dorsal surface of their forearm and wrist. You want to be able to float the probe without putting any pressure on on the patient so that it doesn't cause any discomfort. So using lots of gel is really important. Um, You're going to use their high-frequency linear probe, and you can set it to a fairly shallow depth. Only 2 to 3 centimeters usually is needed. You're going to place the probe on the radius in the longitudinal plane so it's parallel to the bone and you can slide the probe side to side to center it over top of the cortex and you'll see a bright white line across the screen, it's very easy to identify the bony cortex. If you're not sure which line is the bone, you can actually rotate the probe into the transverse plane and you'll see easily see the bony cortex in the shadow behind it and you'll know which of those lines is the right one to look at. Next you're going to slide down the forearm, again making sure not to apply any pressure with the probe on the skin and you'll end up over the fracture fragment and you can easily identify the cortical disruption on the screen. At that point you can assess the alignment and angulation. It's very easy to see the dorsal angulation, dorsal displacement of the fracture fragment. And what I do at that point, I just save that image on the screen and I leave it on the screen. Then you're going to wipe off the gel, perform your reduction, and then just before applying your splint you can just put the probe right back on that fracture fragment and make sure everything lines up nicely you'll see that the displacement has corrected the angulation is now into a bit of volar tilt all those things are very easy to assess with ultrasound if you see that the fracture fragment hasn't budged at all or maybe it's not adequate um, you can give it another pull while the patient's still asleep and again just reassess with your ultrasound Um, a tip for this is make sure you have towels on hand because It's obviously very tricky to do a reduction if there's still ultrasound gel on the arm. You're going to slide and fall. Um, So make sure you wipe off all that gel before doing your reduction.
0: Before we do our last segment in this episode on tips and tricks with skin glue, I'll give you this month's quote of the month. This one's from Franz Kafka. All human errors are impatience, a premature breaking of a methodical procedure, an apparent fencing in of what is apparently at issue. So before we wrap up this episode, we want to talk about the many applications of skin glue. Skin glue has been around for about 10 years or so. And initially it was used just for simple lacerations of the face in kids, for example. But now skin glue is being used for all kinds of things in the emergency department. You tell us what your favorite application of skin glue in the emergency department is.
1: All right. My trick is uh, for dental fractures. So patients come in with LS type two or three fractures. So either through the dentin or into the pulp, it's recommended that their exposed dentin or pulp should be covered. And there are some commercially available pastes and kits for this, but they're not widely available in most emergency departments. So one of the tricks that I use is uh, to use skin glue to actually seal off the exposed dentin or pulp. I find that this actually provides an excellent barrier and actually takes their pain away as well. So it, uh you know, it allows them to to sleep overnight without requiring too much in the way of analgesia until they can get to see a dentist the next day to to repair their tooth. I haven't seen any literature supporting this, but uh, I have heard well, lots of people doing this, and it seems to be a, a fairly common thing now. So, it's an interesting idea. If you don't have the commercial kits available in your emergency department, you can try this. The other one that I really like. I, most people have heard of the hair apposition technique, which is sort of a great way of closing gaping scalp wounds in, especially in pediatric patients, um, which involves you know uh, twisting strands of hair on either side of the laceration and gluing the hair together. The problem with this technique though, is the original study excluded any patients with short hair. So obviously this excludes a lot of young boys from uh, using this technique. Um. There was a, a recent, more recent study that came out called the Modified Hair Apposition Technique, which was designed to try and include patients with shorter hair. And the, this study included patients with hair as short as one centimeter in length. And the way you can do the hair apposition technique for this type of hair is actually to grasp the strands of hair using uh, hemostats or even your needle driver and twist those around and then glue over top. So it, it allows you some extra, um, it, it gives you a device that allows you to grasp onto the hair more easily. And so no longer do you need to exclude your, your young boys from getting this technique.
0: They do note in this study from 2009 from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, the modified hair apposition technique as the primary closure method for scalp lacerations, that most lacerations can be repaired with this technique But care should be taken to apply the glue to the twist of hair only and to avoid excess glue running onto the scalp or into the wound. They did note that in one patient who had glue spill into the wound, they did develop alopecia and they noted that some patients who had too much glue applied to the scalp ended up with a big bundle of hair and glue that they had to cut out after, which is not great for cosmesis for the patient.
1: All right, so one last uh, trick that you can use skin glue for um, is for your nail reimplantations. Um, you know, when I was uh, going through my training, I was, I was taught how to try and suture a nail back in, um, which obviously can be quite tricky. It's difficult. You often end up bending the needle because uh, nails can be quite thick. So a, a trick that you can use is instead of trying to suture a nail back on to the nail bed, you can just apply your skin glue. Obviously, you want to make sure it's a dry surface ahead of time. Stop all bleeding first. You can use a finger tourniquet if you need to. And then just apply your skin glue around the edges of the nail, Mm. and um, it will dissolve in a week, and by then a new nail should be growing in, or this one will be more secured. So I find that patients have a lot more comfort with
0: that. You can actually also try using the glue not only to re-implant the nail, but also to repair a nail bed injury itself. There was an article out of the American Society's Journal of Hand Surgery in 2008 that was a prospective randomized control trial of skin glue versus suture repair for nail bed injuries. They had 40 patients with nail bed lacerations who they randomized to suture repair versus Dermabond. The average time required for nail bed repair using Dermabond was only nine and a half minutes compared to 28 minutes for suture repair. And they looked at one, three, and six month follow-up. They found that there was no statistical difference in physician-judged cosmesis, patient-received cosmetic outcome, Pain or functional ability between the skin glue and the suture treatment cohorts. They concluded that nail bed repair performed using Dermabond was significantly faster than suture repair and it provided similar cosmetic and functional results. So, next time you have a patient with a nail bed injury and you need to fix the nail bed as well as re implant the nail, you could consider using skin glue for all of that. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode. So, until next time, Take it easy.